This is NBR's Live from the Hive, a compilation of the week's top stories straight out of the beehive. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. Beehive banter, or blue beehive banter, if we want to be correct, was the right shift that the polls predicted coming to fruition. Although to what extent, we're still not sure of. Or you could spell it blue, B-L-E-W, as in Labour blew it. But as we've said, we might not actually know the shade of blue until the 25th of November. Is that how you see it, Brent Edwards? Well, obviously, we've got to wait until November 3rd for the final count, which yep. is when, what, there are about over half a million um, special votes to be counted. Now, if they follow historic trends, then Labour and the Greens might pick up one, certainly, possibly two seats. To party um, Māori? Uh, yeah, maybe. So, But anyway, it, that might then mean that that National Act, bare minimum majority they've got now, would disappear. disappear. And therefore, they definitely need New Zealand first. I know Christopher Luxon has pointed out, well, maybe things will be different because of COVID and that, and people, you know, so maybe, but, you know, based on history, you know, you'd expect that. I mean, I, either way, the National Act, you know, block is going to either be just short of a majority or they're going to have a very, mini, you know, minimal yeah. majority. Um, a non-safe majority, would one would say. Yeah, which kind of indicates you think that they they'll need to talk to New Zealand first. And, and, well, and I think they have, you know, obviously are sort of holding out that prospect. So, and then, of course, yes, you talk about November 25th, the by-election, you know, which by a strange, you know, I mean, terrible circumstances in terms of the yes. candidate dying, but it means that National actually, because, you know, one presumes Andrew Bailey will win that seat, yes. National MP, they then pick up another seat on top of, it means they'll have an overhang, they'll have one more seat than they're actually yes. do in terms of their party vote. So, but that, that will then also, you know, depending on how they vote, give them a bit more of a cushion. Yes. Um, if things take that long, and who knows, that might that 25th might even just be the beginning of negotiations, could we actually still see Parliament opening this year? And is there time, in fact, for a mini-budget? Yeah, look, I, I think Parliament will, and I, and I don't think actually it will take to November 25th, because I think, however, they're talking now with ACT, I think there'll be some conversations with New Zealand Yeah, I hear that they're not. Well, I I think that they have made some informal kind of Mm. overtures. So, um, and I think pretty quickly they'll get something put together, whether it's a national act government. um, With support. Because they'll know they've got the November. They know they've got the income. Winston will not just turn around and say, I'll give you confidence and supply unless you get something. Oh, yeah, he'll want to get something. I mean, it'll depend on how long those negotiations might go on, yeah. how tough they want to be. But I, but I think there's no reason why there's not a government put together um, relatively quickly after the final count comes out on November Right, 3rd. so once that happens, then how long before Parliament would open? Well, you can have Parliament open the, the following week. And, right. Um, so there could know, be a mini-budget. There could be a mini-budget. It just depends on how much time they've got to put that mini-budget together. And, they, and they, some changes of legislation. Yeah, I mean, well, because... The worst thing would be would be to rush a mini budget and get some things wrong and then have to come back, you know, like after Christmas yep. and then say, oh, look, we cocked up. Um, so, you know, that'll be a... Um, what could be on the chopping board then to get things across the line from the Nats' point of view, bearing in mind they have ruled out a treaty referendum? Will it be, say, super age? You mean in terms of what National might give up? Well, to they're going to have to give up something, aren't they? Yeah, look, it's hard to tell. I mean, they could presumably, if they required if they required New Zealand First support, that might be something they might put on the back burner um, for a while. You know, 
it's yeah, it's it's hard to tell. There is actually a, a degree of um, kind of, if you like, consensus on some things. I mean, New Zealand First even has a tax cut policy sort of plan. But one of the things though is that Winston Peters says you can't cut taxes immediately though because of the fiscal position. He says that National's tax cut plan is unaffordable at the moment. National and, and Christopher Luxon's repeated this. They're going to do that immediately. Yep. They say people, they've promised tax relief, they're going to give it. Well, so, what about the COVID inquiry? Could he get so, that? Pete, well, there's a COVID inquiry already going on. I guess they could actually make change maybe the terms of reference around that. I mean, what what difference will that make really? Well, I don't know. I'm just trying to figure out what cards he's got to play with. Well, I guess it all depends, doesn't it, on actually what that final vote looks like. I mean, and if, if for instance... There's probably, you know, could be a good chance that National Act can form a government, you know, with the barest of margins, but they still, you know, want Winston Peters in the tent. But he he doesn't then have that much leverage because if he plays hardball, they could say, oh, well, okay, we've got the numbers already, so... Until they haven't. Until they haven't. Yeah. All right, you know, in a lot of countries, look, the Greens have been part of the government on both left and right. Mm. They've gone with with either way, like in Europe, for example, but not here. Now, on election night, <laughs> you'd have think you'd have thunk the Greens had won the entire election. They were whooping, they were clapping, they were celebratory. Best ever. I kept yelling at the TV. I kept saying, why don't you get it? You've lost all power. You've won nothing. They've won nothing. Yeah, look, I think probably the day or so afterwards, there was excitement on the night because they got a good result. It's their second... No one's denying that. Se- their, that's... their second best party vote result. It doesn't matter. They've got and, no power. And they won two more, which was, you know, pretty incredible, two more electorates. So they've won three electorates. So in that sense, it was a success for the Green Party. But on the other hand, no, yeah, they're out of government. And I think a number of them woke up Sunday and thinking, oh, not so great. I mean, the problem for the Greens and for Labour in that sense, is, is when the, the Greens only do well, if you look at the elections, <laughs> only do well when Labour does poorly. Yeah. So three times now the Greens have got double-digit numbers, yeah. 11%, 10%, 10%. They got that in 2011, 2014, and now this, each time Labour's down in the 20s, they can't form a government. So yeah. that's their problem. They do well means Labor does badly. So badly, it's not in a position to govern. And so badly that no matter what the Greens want, they ain't going to get it. That's right. So they'll they'll watch, I guess, some of the initiatives that they can take some responsibility for and credit for now start to be wound back. You know, including on climate change. So yeah. yeah. Um, now let, let's talk about uh, Wellington, for example. It's pretty green now. Uh, probably no surprise, Wellington Central really. But Julianne Genta, Annette King's old seat, many regard because her successor. Um, anecdotally, may not have done a good, a very good job. So by default, do you think? Well, it, yeah, it's. I mean, obviously, the one thing that people can do with their electorate voters vote for the candidate of their choice. Yes. And so there was a sense that Paul Eagle hadn't done a great job as MP in that seat for the last two terms. But also, though, um, in both Wellington Central and Rongatai, the Greens did incredibly well in the party vote. Ahead in Wellington Central and up from Rongatai, either ahead or, or just behind Labour. I mean, they got big party votes there as well. So it wasn't just a candidate vote. Mm. The Greens really picked up a very strong party vote in both those electorates. Interesting. Yeah. But, you know, if Annette King had ever stayed. Well, yeah, but I mean, you know. yeah, yeah. I mean, and I suppose it, that's a question, but for both 
Jenny Ann Genta probably had a profile. Not she that, did. Not that she's lived in that electorate for a long, long time, because no. she was in Auckland when she was first yeah. a Green. But she's got that profile through being a Green MP for some while, obviously ran a good campaign. Yep. Um, Tamatha Paul in Wellington Central, Wellington City Councillor, had developed, yep. developed a profile. And um, once Grant Robertson stepped down, um, then, you know, yep. it made the seat off. more winnable for... Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the national seat. Simon O'Connor made what some say uh, pretty stupid postings and remarks in the past year. I think that you said that. Uh, well, uh, um, did he lose or did ex-Brooke Van Velden win, Tamaki? Well, now, I know uh, technically she won, but that's not what I mean. Yeah, well... Because, um, I mean, I mean, there's no, no question about how good uh, well, uh, Brooke, uh, Brooke is. A, a bit of both, and it's interesting. I mean, clearly, I think, you know, Simon O'Connor very socially conservative and referring to comments, you know, around abortion and the like. And whereas Brooke Van Velden, young woman, socially yep. liberal, but as she said, fiscally conservative, isn't yep. it? Um, so I think she was a more appealing candidate, but she's still on the right. Yep. So it's not like you're voting for someone on the left. Good she's point. still still on the right. And, and interestingly, in fact, in Tamaki, in this election, while he lost and lost reasonably soundly, mm. Nationals' vote went up by party vote went up by 2,000 votes in the seat this election compared with the previous election, X party vote fell. Only slightly, but it fell. So it very much was voting for the candidate, the MP they wanted. Yeah, so he lost. He lost. Yeah. Uh, Would Muldoon be rolling in his grave? Um, Well, he might do. I mean, um, but he, he, he might have a degree of perhaps grudging respect for the campaign that Brooke Van Velden ran, because she clearly ran a very, very effective yes. um, electric campaign, worked very hard, and her team worked very hard. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it's, yeah. But again, you know, you look at that seat and you you look at the two Wellington seats we've talked about where the the major parties lost constituencies to their, their sort of um, smaller party mates. Andrew Little has had enough. I always liked Andrew Little, to be fair. I thought he did a good job. Others yet to make up their mind, and uh, Chris Hipkins deciding to hang around, waiting for the inevitable knife coming towards his back. And that is not if, it's only when, isn't it? Uh, not not clear. Um, a number of oh, M- come a, on. A number of MPs have expressed support for... A um, number of questions. Chris, Chris Hipkins. One, I think, I've really heard. No, I mean, but the, the big question for Labor is, you know, they're going to have to ask themselves, you know, how do they respond do we do what we did in 2008 and for the next three, six years or more, you know, stab one another in the back, show all the disunity and not be in a position to look like an alternative government? Or do we, you know, sort ourselves out and actually get them behind, I suppose? And at this point, the question will be, who who is the alternative? So, but they've got three months after the election, so into by early January, so, which means they'll do it before Christmas, They've got to have a caucus vote to endorse the yep. current leader. Now, Chris Hipkins needs to get 60% plus one of that vote. Yep. If that's the case, he stays as leader. If not, then it opens up a leadership contest. To go- who? The whole party. So No, I don't mean that. Oh, I mean, mean who? Yeah, that's right. Well, that'll be the big question. But um, and I guess the other question is, does he want to – he said he wants to stay, stay on in politics and fight on. Um, does he want to stay on as leader? Um, that'll be he'll have to consider that too. And we, as you say, we've seen Andrew Little decide. Well, he's done his bit and he's going to move aside. But I don't think it'll be great for Labor though if a whole lot of other of their experienced MPs and people have talked about Grant Roberts and others said, "Oh yeah, we're." Well, they, make, they, they made it clear they're making up their mind. Yeah, that we stand down as two because they do need mm. to retain that experience. 
And speaking of experience, so when uh, <laughs> Kitty Allen was Minister of Justice, she launched a review into lobbying. Now it's just come out that two weeks after she left being a minister, she registered her consultancy business, where she mentions she is a former cabinet minister, I know this because I looked online, and lawyer. Bearing in mind she's entitled to make a living. So is it a case of fair enough or hypocrisy at best? Well, I've read her website too, and really there's not a lot in it that reads like a lobbyist to be honest. So, I mean, what what is she meant to do? Is she meant to just... No, that's what I'm asking you. I mean, is it fair enough or is it... Well, uh, to be honest, looking at... You've got to read between the lines. Well, read between the lines. It doesn't, to me, look as though she's... It's not... She's she's not offering herself as a full-time lobbyist. She's offering herself... Well, no, to, I mean, who offers themselves as full-time well, lobbyists? But, 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 so they call themselves lobbyists or do they call I themselves know, other things? But read the website. It's talking about giving business advice... Project Based on the fact that she was a cabinet minister. Well, that's one of the strengths she has behind. I mean, wouldn't I mean your CV? Would you admit that? Admit I wouldn't that. admit I worked with you. I mean, well, that's right. <laughs> Actually, I might. Yeah, but look, I in 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 her case, I, I it doesn't read to me, frankly, like she's a lobbyist. And frankly, anyway, why would you hire her as a lobbyist, given there's a national government in power from now on? Well, that's um, now, that's, know, that, now that's, there that's, you make sense. I mean, <laughs> I mean, she ain't going to get yeah, much. Yeah. yeah. No, that, that, yeah, that makes sense. Very good. All right, so apart from Christopher Luxon saying I won't negotiate in the media, what can we expect in the next week? Also, apart from ex-Labour MPs not having access to the Coral Lounge anymore and telling media to F off when they need to go to the toilet. Well, I expect in the next week you'll hear a lot of um, Christopher Luxon saying I'm refusing to negotiate through the media. I just um, said that. Yeah, I know, and I don't think there'll be much more said, to be honest. So, I mean, he seems to be saying, it's, a, it's an interesting thing because he seems to be saying he's doing it differently to everyone else and he hasn't liked the way previous negotiations have been done, which seems to be both a criticism of Bill English and John <laughs> Key and what have you. But, in fact, he's doing exactly, exactly what the they, same. <laughs> they, they said the same thing. No, we're not going to negotiate through the media. So, Ooh. and actually, he says we're not going to negotiate through the media, and then he says we're going to carry on with our tax cuts. Nicola Willis is going to be finance minister, um, so he's already laying out some clear bottom lines. So, who knows? That was BI banter with all the newbies learning where everything is, getting lost, trying to find where the labs are, and trying to find where the press gallery is at the moment. And which journos to talk to? Well, we're here, you know, just down the corridor, you know, the corridor that looks. Exactly the same as every other corridor. Don't encourage them too much. No, we better go. And uh, put the sign up, Brent. Just put NBR here. All right. Thanks for watching or listening. We appreciate it. Catch you next time. The ACT Party recorded a solid result in Saturday's election, including picking up a second electorate seat and a set to play a crucial role in the next government. I'm joined by ACT leader David Seymour. I, I guess based on some of the earlier polls, not quite perhaps as good as you might have wanted, but, but you're still there with a solid caucus and you are going to be part of the next government. Yeah, well, look, someone asked, did we peak too early? I said, well, um, you know, election night wasn't our best result out of the, the preceding few months, so I guess by definition that's true. Um, but the other way you look at it is, you, you know, acts started well and actually finished well compared with any other election, as you say. Um, and I think the fact that Brooks uh, won Tamaki um, means a whole bunch of things. First of all, if you live in Tamaki, you get, a, a, frankly, a much better local MP, and I, th I think she will be very good. Um, but it also shows that 
ACT has talented people, and Brooke is a very talented person, and it also shows the ACT brand as such that you know people will actually look at the possibility of, of electing an ACT MP. Now, I think if you go back a few years, all of those things seem pretty difficult to imagine. Um, so look, it's you know overall we're very pleased about the result. Um, I think final analysis, we, we told a few truths too many. One is the government's out of money and it's actually going to have to pull back its spending. Um, doesn't always make you popular being a profit like that. Um, and second of all, um, we need to have a, an uncomfortable but necessary conversation about uh, the role of race in our society. It's, it's become so divisive um, and yet the truth is we're all human and we need to discuss that. And so those things I think probably piled on a bit of antipathy towards towards the end that, that hurt our, our brand and vote but we're still right and I'm still glad we did it that way. I mean just let's just pick up on mm. the comment about mm. race because you have talked about the need mm. for a new government to unite the country too but mm. as you say it's, it would be a difficult conversation mm. doesn't what you're proposing run the risk of further dividing mm. the country? No because what's happening right now is you've got a government that in just about every field of policy is trying to run a microcosm of one version of the treaty. The interpretation that is that the treaty created a partnership between races. So first of all, to find out what your rights are and what your role is, you need to know what your race is. And that's that's totally, I mean, it's, it's difficult to imagine we're even saying it, but it's true in healthcare, consultation on resource management, government of three waters, I mean, you, you name it, that's, that's, the, that's the policy. Now, you know, it's not, it's not us that, that put those policies in place, uh, but we are saying we need to talk about it. Yeah, but you do accept that, as you say, that's going to be a difficult conversation. Uh, absolutely, but, you know, it, it will be more difficult if we don't have it um, because you wonder how many people are out there who have either themselves or a relative been told they would have got different medical treatment if they were from a different ethnic group. That's a pretty common anecdote now. Uh, people who have gone for a resource consent and had to get a cultural assessment report or know someone that has or been involved in a project uh, that has. Um, you know, people who look at the governance of three waters. Um, people who look at the way that language is being used, not in a practical way of how do I help navigate my government or my street or whatever, but in a way that's designed to effectively change you and make you a better person that creates a lot of resentment. So if you look at a recent poll from Curia, um, you know, 45% of people like Act's idea and want Act's idea of having a referendum uh, on the principles of the treaty. 25% opposed and 30% won't say or unsure. Now, for a concept that Act floated 18 months ago, it's pretty extraordinary support. Uh, similarly, when you ask them, do you agree with Act's proposed interpretation of the principles of the treaty or what, what the tr treaty principles should say, 60% um, say yes, you know, 22% say no, 18% aren't sure. So, you know, again, three to one support for, for that conception of the treaty. I think that's something that we need to build on. So is that something then you will expect that there'll be movement on relatively quickly by the new government? Yeah, I do. It's an idea whose time has come. Uh, we have a government that has, you know, or a parliament at least, that has said since 1986 that tre these treaty principles exist. But Parliament, uh, as the representative of the people, has remained completely silent um, on what the principles are, what they mean. Uh, it's allowed, instead it's really, in my view, abdicated and allowed the courts, the Waitangi Tribunal, the pub public service, the academics, 
basically a very small segment of New Zealand has defined uh, what our constitution means and I think that the rest of the, the society actually deserve the right to, to have a say. How long do you think that process will take? Oh, I, it would be something that would be done over several years. You would have to legislate. I would advocate doing fulsome legislative process, taking people who want to make submissions to select committees, having a proper debate about the bill in the House, and having a clause on the bill that says it must be, um, you know, defined by uh, confirmed, sorry, by referendum. Um, and ideally, you'd do that in line with the, the next election. Um, so, look, it would be something that would happen over a period of time, and it, it would involve. Uh, a lot of work, but the alternative is to have a founding document whose principles and interpretation is far away from what most New Zealanders believe, and I don't think that's sustainable, particularly when the conclusion reached is that um, we are a partnership between races where your role in New Zealand society depends on your birth. I mean, that's, that's never been a good political model. To the other point you raised, you said perhaps didn't gauge you as much popularity in terms of government spending the like. Mm. Do you expect that before Christmas the new government would set out some sort of new spending track for, to, for, for bringing spending back? Look, I think it needs to. I mean, it seems that New Zealand is becoming an outlier in terms of inflation and interest rates, and that is hurting people badly. I mean, their prices are going up, the mortgage rates are going up, their rent, if they, don't, if they have a landlord with a mortgage, is going up. Um, and, of course, employers are finding wage pressure to keep paying more to keep up with that. Well, something's got to give. At some point, uh, that spiral has to fall apart, and when it does, it's very painful. So what's the other thing you can do to try and relieve it? Um, I think the current or the previous government um, has actually tried to let open the tap on immigration. Um, well, that's one option to try and push down the price of workers and so on, but you've still got the rising prices elsewhere. So what's the other thing we can change? Government spending. Government is spending too much. That is pushing inflation. That is pushing interest rates. So are those, are those the two sort of key areas you want to move on first that we've talked about, or are there others? Uh, well, the, those are two key areas, but there are others. It's also um, government can spend, but it can also regulate. So I think we've talked before about our approach to red tape and regulation is to start defining problems, doing cost-benefit analysis, getting rid of laws that, that don't work. Um, and I think that's something that really needs to happen. So, of course, this government's going to be made up of at least two parties, possibly three. Mm. Um, you accept that there's going to have to be compromises along the way? Oh, there cert most certainly is, and that's why, you know, I've always shied away from people saying, you know, this is a bottom line or that's a bottom line. At the end of the day, a better analogy is a marriage. You've got to maintain your own individual purpose and identity, but also make the overall relationship work as well. Um, and yes, that involves compromise, but it also involves showing people um, that, you, you know, the marriage is all the better for having act in it. But I guess all three parties have talked about the need to... Um, bring back government spending and all three parties to differing degrees have talked about issues to do with I think they all oppose for instance the Murray Health Authority, Three Waters so you can see that there is some consensus to make movement on those areas? 
Yeah, I would argue in each case ACT has a more comprehensive plan around what needs to be done. Um, so, you know, we've actually been the ones that have put out numerous policy documents um, which are detailed, which are footnoted, which say this is what needs to happen. Uh, and so I believe that we have the, I guess, the IP, if you like, to um, make sure that these changes uh, actually happen and are good policy and stick. And I guess in terms of being in government cabinet positions, any thought to that? Um, yeah, look, obviously, you know, ACT is a portion of any new government, at the very least a sixth, if not a fifth, of a new government. Um, and so you would expect to act, act to have a, a portion of positions in that sense. Um, having said that, um, you know, our view is that uh, the ACT party is actually um, here to make sure the policy gets better. No point taking the job if your legacy is bad policy, in fact that's worse outcome. Uh, so we've got to make sure that we got the agreement to do good policy, then think about the jobs, that's always been my view. Um, giving up being a minister to do end of life choice is one of the things I'm more proud of having done because um, that end of life choice act, that euthanasia bill, um, that actually gives people relief and choice and control pretty much every day now in New Zealand. Um, whereas being a minister for a fleeting temporary period of time, um, maybe if you're really driven by status then that helps, but I've always said it's more important to achieve things um, than, than gain status. When would you hope that an agreement could be reached, that a new government could kind of be in Look, I, I hope that there'll be open discussions over the next three weeks so that whatever the voters finally um, announce, and, and we'll hear that announcement loud and clear when the specials are voted, uh, counted. Um, if ACT and National hold on with the majority and add to that with the Port Waikato by-election, um, then I think that's a very good outcome, and I think we can have an ACT National government there. Um, if, on the other hand... Um, you know, there's there's a, a seat lost to the left or two seats lost to the left on the specials. Then then that will require um, that you know New Zealand First is somehow part of that deal. Um, and then you know you got to think about it differently. So that's our basic view. David Seymour, thank you for your time. Thank you. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. Both the National and Labour parties face big challenges after Saturday's election. To discuss, I'm joined by NBR's political editor, Brent Edwards. So, Brent, the big question for Labour is what went wrong? They didn't get enough votes. <laughs> well, they've That's been here before, haven't they? Yeah, well, they have been. Look, I mean, there'll be a whole host of theories put up um, and, you know, people blame all sorts of different things for why Labour's result is so poor. Uh, but I think, um, you know, Grant Robertson uh, made the comment, look, there's no one single thing. There's a whole host of things always that when governments lose that lead to it. And I, I think for Labor, you know, COVID eventually, the, and, and particularly the ongoing restrictions, and I think particularly in Auckland, because when you look at that Auckland vote, um, that was very much against Labor. Uh, obviously cost of living crisis, people are feeling it tough, so they'll blame the government. Um, I think just perhaps general sense around economic conditions. Um, also issues around, I mean, obviously, you know, they were outspent in the campaign. Uh, National and ACT got a lot more money and large donations than, than Labor could ever hope to to pick up. So, you know, sort of a whole range of things, and not forgetting, of course, four ministers who disappeared this year and 
kind of, you know, not great circumstances now. That was unprecedented, really. So, you know, any one of those things actually could have been enough to maybe have, you know, if you like. But when you put all of those factors together, it was always... Yeah. Well, the focus now is on whether Chris Hipkins should stay on or not. What do you think? Yeah, look, there's, I mean, obviously a lot of people have immediately thought, oh, he's got to resign or he's going to get rolled because he's lost an election. Well, you know, actually he's, he has only been Labour Party leader and Prime Minister since the end of January, so, what, basically eight months. Um, it seems under MMP, though, we've got to the situation that as soon as a party loses an election, particularly either of the major parties, and out of government, then the leader should go. Um, I'm not so sure. I mean, probably Helen Clark helped that because on the night in 2008 when Labor lost then, she announced her resignation that night, which in my view was always too premature. Uh, so I, th- I think from Labor's point of view, they, they probably would be smarter just to kind of suck it in a bit and think about it before they do anything hasty. I mean, if you look back at their experience after 2008, they then went through a, a period of internecine warfare and what have you, and they were in no position to come back into government. So that that, that helped. wasn't the only thing, but it helped ensure they were th- at least three terms out of power. You look at National after the 2017 election, again, they got into a, a wave of infighting and, and leadership changes and instability, which you know, didn't help their chances and it was only once Christopher Luxon came in and all of a sudden, you know, the party did unify and looked unified and solid that then it was in this position to obviously come back into government now. So Chris de Villaxon, uh will be leading the next government with a few bedfellows. Yeah, he will. And, and he faces big challenges. A lot of focus at the moment on Labour, I guess, and op, you know, given they had a big loss. But in fact, you know, National faces big, big challenges. Firstly, to stitch together, a co- you know, they'll get a coalition, but it's what sort of deal will they get to, to get the parties to the table? And of course, we still quite don't know quite whether New Zealand First will be involved or not. More than likely, New Zealand First will be involved, and that, you know, having to negotiate with two parties, well, you know, will be problematic um, in terms of meeting their kind of demands, might have you to stitch together government. But then, actually, looking at the the issues that confronts that government, I mean, you know, there are no easy fixes to a number of the the issues that are around, and. One of the, I think, um, challenges for, for National and particularly for Christopher Luxon is he's made a big thing about he's a results guy, outcomes focused, etc. You know, former chief executive, he knows how to get things done. So he's kind of created this um, expectation that they'll make changes quick, but not only that make changes, that they'll get results quickly. And now in some of those areas, they may not come as quick as um, he might like. It's, it's a lot more difficult in government to get firstly to get shifts, but also these issues around you know changing, for instance, the RMA or you know the RMA reforms, three waters reform, you know a whole host of things. Health, um, he, he made the point, for instance, that the Maori Health Authority in a year had made no progress, and kind of that was a reason to get rid of it. Well, a year from now, what progress is likely to have been made on sort of Maori health expectations? Um, probably not. So. I mean, one thing in their favour is we know inflation's coming down, so it'll mm. keep on going down, frankly, irrespective of what government was in power. So they'll kind of have that to um, kind of tick off at the end of three years that they've... Um, but, you know, but some of those other issues, they may not meet the expectations that they've built up among the voting public. So so it'll be interesting. He's got a whole lot of things to deal with. And, and you know, ministers, uh, it'll be a largely inexperienced government. So, you know, there'll be a whole lot of... Uh, 
new ministers learning on the job. So all those sorts of things. You know, it's going to be an interesting, certainly interesting first 12 months as they kind of bed it down and, and, and get the government going. So for now, a couple of weeks, special vote counts? Yeah, well, so we've got to wait for November the 3rd when mm. the final official count will come out. Um, you know, if it follows historic trends, you'd expect that... Um, Labor and the Greens might pick up a seat each, or at least a seat between them possibly, which would mean that National and ACT wouldn't have a majority on their own, which would obviously mean that New Zealand First is that much more important. Um, you know, look, but who knows, some people suggest that given COVID and everything, maybe the specials won't go that way again, but all we can do is judge it on what's happened in the past at the moment. So we've got to wait till that final result, as, as does, I guess, the parties before they finally seal the deal. Um, and the interesting thing will be, I guess, is if National doesn't need New Zealand First, will it still do a deal? Because if it doesn't need New Zealand First, it's still going to have a very narrow majority with you know a national act government, so you know Christopher Luxon may determine that he still wants to have New Zealand first in the tent somehow to give that government a bigger majority in the house. Brent Edwards, thank you. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website nbr.co.nz. Brooke Van Velden's win in Tamaki was one of the great surprises of the 2023 election. But now that Act's deputy leader has stormed the former blue bastion, what's she going to do with it? Brooke Van Velden joins me now. And Brooke, you know, Act came a long way behind National and the party vote in Tamaki, and yet people were happy to give you their electorate vote. What do you put it down to? Look, I put down the win for the Tamaki seat to a lot of hard work, um, a lot of effort, Firstly, on my part, but mainly on the effort of all of my volunteers and supporters. You know, we had a really good campaign. We had 130 street corner meetings, even out in the rain and literal hail, when I thought surely people still won't turn up to this meeting, and they were there in the hail, even without umbrellas. Um, we had at least 10 coffee catch ups. Uh, we had public meetings. I went out door knocking for four hours every single day. You know, we were out in the community listening to people, and I think that's what people in Tamaki really responded to. I've heard some people say maybe it was to do with me being you know, fiscally conservative but also socially liberal, but I actually put it down to being an accessible MP and a hard-working MP, and I think that's what people want in Parliament. Nevertheless, the contrast between you and your opponent is quite stark. You know, he, he's an older male moral conservative. You're a young female liberal socially and economically. How much do you think that counted against him and played for you? I think there's certainly some people who would have voted along those lines. Um, mainly I heard people uh, say to me they voted against him um, because of his social conservatism because they didn't feel like he was approachable because of those views. But that was a smaller segment of the whole story. You know, there's always a range of people who have a different reason for voting for you. Um, you know, and not everybody in the electorate is a female who cares about abortion rights. Um, what I resoundingly heard was that people wanted somebody who was hardworking, who was accessible, accessible um, and who could potentially be a much more influential MP for the area than just say uh, somebody who might be a backbencher um, and it was a seat that remember was held by a former Prime Minister 
Um, and I think that's the gravitas that people want back in Tamaki. So what have you been doing since Saturday? Since Saturday, I, um, I went out and created some little billboards because we'd done sign waving throughout the whole campaign, which became a really awesome part of the campaign, um, and put on the back in magenta paint, thank you, um, thank you Tamaki, and some of our volunteers went back out into the community for sign waving on the Monday morning, um, just thanking everybody for their support, because it was really wonderful how many people had come out to support our campaign. We won by quite a large majority, um, but it was also really wonderful during the campaign how many kids got involved in it. And when we were doing our sign waving, the kids would wind down the windows and say, hey, Brooke, or we're voting for you. And so we wanted to make sure that we went back into the community and said, well, thank you for your support. And you've actually been part of what made this possible. Um, since then, I've also been getting on the phone with a bunch of uh, real estate people and landlords to see how one goes about actually establishing a community office and where I could find one that's actually accessible and affordable. So watch this space because I still haven't got an answer to that question. <laughs> the basic stuff. You know, nevertheless, the, the, the hard work has to start now too. And, you know, you've cited things like crime and cost of living as being issues generally this election. What do you think are the concerns particularly for the, the, for the people of Tamaki? Yeah, crime is the biggest concern I've heard in Tamaki. It happened at every single street corner meeting. Um, people just do not feel safe. Um, whether it's the fact that the Caltex on Long Drive uh, was ram-raided about a fortnight ago, or there was an Oraki, the Sebastian's Cafe, and Pincho's is the, I guess, the local pub. Um, both were ram-raided about a month ago. Um, it's throughout the community. You know, you talk to some of the dairy owners and they're actually really afraid to go to work now. And people have said, yeah, we always knew that there was crime, but we just didn't expect it right on our street. And it's everywhere, whether that's people feeling like their car doors have been jiggled, um, people actually having um, people come up to them on the traffic lights trying to open their cars. Um, we have to just get really serious on crime. The second thing that I've heard about has been the influence of a feeling of division in our society, that people don't feel like we're as welcoming as we used to be. And I want to make sure that everybody, no matter what race or ethnicity or gender they are, even what religion they are, everybody knows that they can feel welcome in our community. Um, and the third thing, which surprises quite a few people, but it doesn't surprise me when I've been out on the doorsteps, has been the cost of living. I've had people nearly burst into tears on me and say that they're really afraid that they can't pay the mortgage. And so this is affecting, you know, not people who might just be renting, but people who are, you know, they might have over a $1.5 to $2 million home and they're already financially stretched, but they're thinking, if I have to refix my mortgage in another six months to a year, how will I actually afford that? And what else am I going to have to cut back on? You know? Speaking of housing, one of your policies was to uh, return half of the GST on residential building to local councils to invest in infrastructure. Is that something you're going to keep pushing for? I would love to keep pushing for this. I'm not going to negotiate uh, any government policies through media, though. Um, but this is a policy that I have quite close to my heart because it's been my member's bill. Um, so I'd love to continue to advocate for that. Um, I think it's really quite useful because when I've been talking to people involved in um, local council and talking to builders, architects, even people on the street, they understand the problem. The council just doesn't have the funding 
to invest in basic infrastructure. And we saw, maybe that's going back what, a fortnight, three weeks ago, the huge sinkhole that developed in Parnell. Um, and I was told that that's a pipe that was 110 years old and just hadn't been upgraded. And that's affected all of the Tamaki Eastern beachfront, which has been unswimmable now for weeks. And um, there's a real fear that if we don't get basic infrastructure right, we are going to see a whole bunch of our beautiful, beautiful part of Auckland that's unswimmable and unsafe. All right, so watch this space on infrastructure. But what do you think are the important elements of a coalition deal? Hmm... Well, importantly, I think it's it's good that we end up with a stable government, um, and I, you know, I disagree with the idea that we should let the media know exactly what we're going to go into negotiations for, because that goes against the purpose. Um, but I think at the end of the day, if we end up with in three years' time still having a stable government, we've actually put out all of our policy frameworks about what we'd hope to achieve, and we've managed to achieve them. Then that would be a really good outcome. Is there a particular portfolio you'd like if you were a minister in the new government? I will go where the party and the government think I'm best used to serve. Um, but look, I, I didn't get into politics because I wanted to be a minister and have a fancy title. I do care about the policy and I do care importantly about my generation. And I care about generational debt, making sure that we are actually constraining government wasteful spending because at the end of the day, somebody has to pay for it. And quite often, that's the next generation following. Um, and I think we have seen wasteful government spending, not just from this government, but by previous ones too. Um, this one has been pretty bad. And I think we actually have to be fiscally conservative. If you were a minister, though, how, how do you juggle that with being a new electorate MP? You're right. It is going to be a lot of hard work. Um, but the way I look at it, is I've had a really good mentor um, through David Seymour and he's shown me over the past few years how you can be a leader in Parliament and also a very good constituent MP. Um, so that's all I ever really know. You know I've learnt from the best. Um, and yes, it will be difficult having to juggle Wellington and government um, but also being in the local community. But I do believe it's possible. It just comes down to a lot of hard work. Do you have aspirations to be the next ACT leader? Not at this stage. Um, certainly I know it's been um, uh, talked about in the media and through various people. Look, I'd be really humbled to serve in that position, but David has my absolute 100% support. Brooke Van Velden, thanks for coming in. Thank you very much for having me. The National Party will lead the next government, but there's still uncertainty about whether that government will also include New Zealand First. To talk about the likely policy shifts following the election, I'm joined by Business New Zealand Chief Executive Kirk Hope and Council of Trade Unions economist Craig Rennie. Look, start with you, Kirk. What expectations do you have in terms of sort of some immediate policy shifts under a new national-led government? Well, look, I mean, there's going to be some very, very clear shifts um, in the industrial relations space. I think the, uh, I think National have been very clear about that, but it's, but it's also been the policy of ACT and New Zealand First in, in relation to fair pay agreements. So I think they will be gone. Um, if, if there are any uh, actually 
negotiated prior to the negotiation of a new government, uh, that might be a little bit more problematic, but I think that, that those will be the first things to go. The other thing that I think in the industrial relations space, which will be very important for a a national-led government will be to deal with the 90-day trial, for uh, so reintroduce it for all businesses, not just businesses uh, with with uh, 20 employees or under. So those things will be uh, quite substantial shifts um, compared to where Labor, the Labor government have been. I mean, Craig, I think you've got a, a different view, obviously, on fair pay agreements. So what do you think should happen? Well, I think it's it really is a little bit too early to say, as you said, we're still waiting to hear whether or not New Zealand First will come into government, and that will make a big difference. Well, but as Kirk says, New Zealand First has also been pretty clear about its opposition yes. to fair pay agreements. And I think one of the things that, you know, there, there are plenty of different ways that which that could be stopped or it could be um, arrested. One of the ways it could be, for example, is actually allow the existing eight that are in the process of negotiation to be negotiated through, but just stop any further um, ones from happening and then use that as a mechanism to then assess whether or not the, the fair pay agreement system is bringing benefits um, to New Zealand because the international evidence on that certainly does suggest that fair pay agreements bring many benefits both to the economy as well as to workers themselves. I mean, Kirk, would you have any concern if the existing ones in negotiation were allowed to proceed or do you think they should just be wiped off the board? Well, I mean, I guess I'd probably challenge Craig's perspective around or characterisation around the benefits of so-called fair pay agreements uh, because th there actually isn't anything like fair pay agreements around the world. There's no other jurisdiction, no other country, which forces employers to the table to negotiate. So my observation would be, uh, and, our, and we, our very clear view around this has been that these breach international law and have done, uh, so, so I think uh, actually the incoming government should get rid of them as quickly as possible. If there is a collective bargaining process that needs to happen uh, and you know, um, national, a national-led government wants to engage with that, it, it will be different and it will not be fair pay agreements. I think right. the the evidence, you know, um, the, the, the you may disagree, Kirk, with my characterisation of them, but the International Labour Organisation certainly didn't find that they broke um, any of our current um, international well, labour. No, what they said, what they and, said is, what they, they said is, you have to go Kirk. back, you have to go back and engage with with business on them, and the government did not. It's, um, it certainly didn't find um, any, that they broke any. Um, international, any of our international obligations. Um, and certainly when we look at sectoral agreements, which is what a fair pay agreement is, they're common across many European states. They're common in Australia and um, with a national award system. Not by forcing employers to the table. Not by forcing employers um, to the table. Every employer um, that is subject to a national award in Australia um, has to live by the rules of the national award. Uh, yeah, but so, they're not forced to the table. We could get into well, we, yeah, yeah. The second point just, was the second point that Kirk made was around ninety day trials. Ninety day trials. Um, you know, and and I think Kirk's right. Sort of, you know, the the National Party has signalled um, quite strongly that it wants to see, um, you know, that being brought back. Um, the evidence there from the Treasury um, and from elsewhere is that they have uh, marginal, if ne if negative impacts um, in the labour market in terms of hiring decisions. Um, and in terms of labour market flexibility. So we'll have to see whether or not they, they come back in a, in a different format um, than the one that then 
previously existed or whether or not they're just going to roll them back to where they were um, you know, um, under the John Key government. I actually agree with well, Craig. They, it needs If you're going to do things in the labour market, they do have to be evidence-based. And, and I think in, the t- in terms of 90-day trials, um, I, I would say uh, the challenge that, uh, for example, unions had with 90-day trials is that uh, what they were saying is that people were being, uh, being, being taken out of employment uh, using a 90-day trial. But there were, the, the instance of that, the evidence around that was... was that that was happening at a very low level. There were, there were you know, there were um, maybe if so something like a let's say hundred thousand agreements were negotiated using the ninety day trial. Maybe less than one percent of them were used to exclude people from employment. So you have to use an evidence base to have a discussion about employment, and not and not an ideological base. And I think that is going to be really really critical going forward. I want to move to, to tax change and, and tax cuts. And the National Party has its own tax cut policy. The ACT Party has a tax cut policy, which is a bit more mm. bolder. New Zealand First has a tax cut policy, but, but Winston Peters has repeatedly said um, none of these policies are affordable at the moment. What, what's your view, Kirk Hope? Do you think, Kirk, that um, the government should proceed with tax cuts now? Or is there an argument to, to wait until the government's books get into back into better shape? Well, I mean, I guess it's the, the question is what, what are people going to do with that money? Uh, are they going to spend and boost inflation? Are they going to save and, you know, again, reduce inflation? Um, and my observation would be what, what, what would you rather do? Would you rather enable people to make those decisions themselves or would you rather enable a government to make a decision around that, and the que- that, so that's kind of been the question of the election, right? Do you want the government to spend your money, or do you want to be able to spend your own money? And and so my observation would be, um, if it's a choice between government spending my money, or me spending my money, or or, or you know someone in my family, uh, it's it's going to be clear, uh, and that's exactly what Kiwis decided, pretty much last night, and so I think. Um, What's going to happen is that uh, that that national, will, if they do, they'll do they'll do some form of tax cut. If if New Zealand First block it, if they're part of the government, that'll be because you know they're saying mm, we're a bit we're a bit kind of on the cusp on this. But the reality is, it is a clear differentiation between people spending their own money or government spending it. There's no choice around that. Government will need to spend money. And national has argued this is a cost of living measure. Um, it is. Um, uh, it's a cost of living measure for landlords who get $2.3 billion out of the program. Um, whereas, you know, the majority of people, um, are, there's more than 2 million New Zealanders who will get less than $2, $2.15 a week um, under the program. So, you know, as a cost of living program, it's heavily skewed in a particular direction. Um, what I would say is that, you know, to, to, to Kirk's point, um, He's absolutely right. There, one of the central questions in the election was, do you want to spend the money or do you want the government to spend the money? Unfortunately, National's tax policy was both. They want to give you tax money back, they want to give you a tax cut, and continue to spend the money at the same time. Um, and they filled the gap with their um, overseas purchaser tax, uh, with a casino tax, and a range of other revenue um, measures, including um, you know, the, the additional 6.5% cut to public services. Clearly time will have to tell whether or not they actually generate that revenue because 
what otherwise they will be in the situation of both saying, I'm going to give you some money and I'm still going to spend the cash on the other side. Um, I think there's very little economic rationale right now for there being the kinds of tax cuts that are being proposed. Um, when Goldman Sachs tells you that, you know, that notorious left-wing organisation tells you that something is going to be inflationary, um, then you should probably listen on the other side. So um, I think, you know, we should be looking at there's a, a very significant number of areas post many of the events that we've had over the past few years, Cyclone Gabrielle, a range of those where we need to make really long-term investments in New Zealand, um, and they will reap long-term economic rewards, which, to Kirk's point, will actually put more money in the pockets of New Zealanders in the long run. I mean, Kirk, would you like to see, I mean, more tax change or actually specific tax change for businesses? Because that doesn't seem to be... Well, well I mean, I, I think um, what... What has been proposed are, you know, personal tax cuts for the so-called squeezed middle, which are, you know, which are, you know, it's not a so-called squeezed middle. It is a very, very much a squeezed uh, middle class in New Zealand. I guess long term what we'd like to see is uh, a competitive corporate tax rate. Um, whether that's now or in the future, you know, that'll be a decision for the government. Um, what we've said is, look, if you lower corporate tax rates, um, again, that's that's a pathway to growth which generates more tax revenue in the longer term, which enables the type of expenditure that you know Craig's talked about to to help people who are really, really in trouble. I think one of the biggest challenges with this election has been for particularly for the left, um, because I think I don't think anyone disagrees that what you want to do as a country uh, is make sure that the most vulnerable people are looked after, right? So that means your your tax policy has to be good, but your uh, welfare policy has to be even better. It means it needs to deliver to the people who are the most vulnerable. And I think one of the challenges that the current or the previous government has faced is that they haven't been able to deliver as much as is needed or as is necessary or as is could be delivered given the scope of revenue that has been generated to the people that need it the most. Now, that's a failure of uh, of policy, and it's a failure of execution. So no government will escape that. Great. Sure, sure. I mean, I, I don't disagree with Kirk that certainly, um, you know, um, many people feel, and there's certainly, um, uh, uh, you know, many people feel as if progress on many key areas was lacking. Um, in the last term, be it on housing, um, be it on um, on child poverty, um, and you know most of the voices actually from from the, from from the the left were actually criticising the government on that space, saying you're not doing enough um, in these areas. Simultaneously, you then had voices voices on the right then saying, but we also want you to cut spending, we want you to reduce wasteful spending, we want you to do things. You can you can do both of these things, but it's very hard to do that at the same time as try to deal with many of the challenges that have come through, particularly in this term um, of government. Um, but I, I, it, it, there, there, is, there is going to be a job for um, uh, the, the whatever Labour opposition or Green opposition or you know, whatever progressive government's opposition, uh, opposition, political party's opposition comes forward, to articulating what that good economy looks like and how it's paid for. Um, and how and what difference it's going to make to exactly the people Kirk was talking about in terms of you know those people who feel as squeezed middle um, voters and that they're going to get something from that change 
not just um, dry statistics that 77,000 children have been lifted out of poverty. That's great, but also what is it they're going to see and feel that's different as a consequence of that? Mm. I just want to finish with a, a broad catch-all question, really. <laughs> RMA reform legislation mm. gone, changes to the climate change response and the whole push around cutting regulations. I mean, Kirk, does, does that... Does that prov- is that providing more certainty for business about the way ahead? I mean, is that... Well, I mean, I, I, the way that I'd characterise this, Brent, is that um, what you'd say is um, that one of the biggest challenges that we've sort of faced as a business community over the last six years is a, a, deci- a de- decision is made and then a decision is changed. So, so that's what's happened from a policy frame. It's very hard from an investment perspective to feel confident that you understand what the future might look like from a policy perspective uh, to enable you to invest. And so what the what the next government needs to be able to do is say, this is our policy path, we are very clear on it, whether it's climate change, uh, w- whatever it is, and say we are going to stick to this pathway because that will enable businesses to invest. Uh, uh, One perfect example is with the ETS. You know, no business in New Zealand has a very, very clear picture about where the ETS would have landed up under the previous government um, because changes kept being made. What that meant is that significant taxpayer subsidies had to be uh, had to be provided through the Giddy Fund. And, you know, is that a really is that is that the way that we want to go? Don't we want businesses to be able to invest confidently without the need for business subsidies, right? Craig, do you... I think, you know, um, confidence is a very mercurial thing and also the extent to which certainly some of the measures of business confidence um, then reflect real-world outcomes is, is very arguable. You know, um, you know, Wellington Phoenix football results have a better correlation <laughs> with GDP growth um, than, than business confidence statistics. Um, there will almost inevitably be a rise in business confidence after the election because there is a new government in town um, which wears a different colour tie um, which more people, of, you know, of biz- people who are filling in business confidence statistics tend to associate with. So the real challenge will be whether or not that registered business confidence then turns into real economic activity in terms of climate change, in terms of uh, um, you know, um, RMA reform, um, there's going to still be a really messy process between now and whenever decisions get made of reforming those things. Um, you know, the National Party said it's going to remove the RMA reform that's just occurred and then rewrite it and then hand back another RMA reform on top. That's an incredibly expensive very tedious and very bureaucratic process to have to go through um, and doesn't provide anyone with the confidence that they need to be able to to do developments or other things in the short run. So, although um, although, although they, I, I, they have said they're only going back to the old RMA regime pre-David Parker's reforms and then they said they would add in some fast track measures and there will be some there might be some negotiations some changes around the fast track measures which is exactly actually uh, through covid what what david parker had provided so you know and, in the end and 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 i think and i think if we if we genuinely you know i think if, if people genuinely believe that removing repealing a bit of legislation going back to another piece of legislation and then adding some more bits on top isn't going to involve um, uh, 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 public servants and politicians adding a bit more and doing a bit more and it becoming quite uncertain through the process and the select committee process of nothing else, there's going to be 
you know, um, we're going to have many months of uncertainty in that. We're going to have many months of uncertainty in terms of ETS revenue and, and, and reform and how that's going to quite pan out. Um, and the existing programs that are currently being paid for out of the, the climate, the emergency response fund, how they're then terminated to help pay for the, the, the tax cuts um, that are proposed. Again, there's a lot of uncertainty, which is not conducive to, 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 to the kinds of long-term investments that I think Kirk and I actually want to see in New Zealand. Okay. Kirk Hope, Craig Rennie, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. And that's been this week's Live from the Hive. Thanks for listening.